I'm Alejandra Melian. Welcome to Talking Culture. Before we begin, I'd like to acknowledge that this podcast is produced on the traditional territory of the Ganyan Gahaga on the land known as Chiochiage. We recognize the Ganyan Gahaga as the rightful stewards of this land.
United States government and the courts and the local courts did this, they would have to choose black people from the black community to sit up on the jury. They'd have to choose some of the mothers who've been working 20 years in Miss Ann's kitchen scrubbing floors like my mother had done. They'd have to choose some of them hardworking fathers. They'd have to choose some of those brothers who stand on the block out there wondering where they're going to get a gig. They're going to have to choose these black people. And number 10, he would say, let's just summarize it. We want housing, we want clothing, we want education, we want justice, and we want peace. This is the basic platform. That was Bobby Seale at the Oakland Auditorium in 1968. Seale founded the Black Panther Party along with Huey Newton in 66. And this clip comes from Seal's speech at the Free Huey Newton rally after Newton was jailed. In 1972, the 10 point program that you hear Seal describe here was amended to make health a central concern. Responding to racial health disparities was a big part of the Panthers' social programs, which they called survival programs. In 1970, SEAL directed each chapter of the Black Panther Party to open health clinics in their community, and in Winston-Salem, North Carolina, the chapter even ran an ambulance service. The Panthers held screenings for diseases, dispensed basic medical care, and helped shield communities of color from exploitative research, such as the creation of the proposed UCLA Center for the Study and Reduction of Violence, which included among its experiments brain surgery to quote-unquote, remedy aggression. The Panthers provided these health services for the same reason they ran all their other survival programs. Government failed to do so for their communities. The official amendment to the 10-point program stated the following. Provide free of charge for the people health facilities which will not only treat our illnesses, most of which have come about as a result of our oppression, but which will also develop preventative medical programs to guarantee our future survival. Today, obviously, racial disparities in health still exist. Next week's episode is going to diverge from our current structure in order to talk about that in the context of COVID. Until then, I suggest you check out Code Switch's episode, Why Now, White People? I've left a link in the show notes. It's been hard getting myself to focus on COVID-19 with everything else that's going on. But the conversations I'm having are still important and messages about crisis and change can be held in many contexts. For this week's episode, I spoke with my friend and colleague, Heather Anderson. Heather pointed me towards questions about the future that I was unready to grapple with, but seem particularly crucial now. She questioned whether we should return to research projects that aren't as good at responding directly to the world. A moment like this one shows us just how limited the usefulness of our projects can be. At first, I felt threatened by this suggestion. After all, sometimes we need to ask questions that nobody has thought to ask yet. But as our conversation went on, I realized that she didn't mean our research should now all be focused on public health, for example. What we need is to look at the structural issues COVID is highlighting and think about how our projects speak to those. What is our work contributing to the rebuilding process to come? Although we spoke before the protest started, those questions must also be applied when thinking about making our research and work actively anti-racist. Heather Anderson is a PhD candidate in McGill's anthropology department. She holds a master's in anthropology from the New School for Social Research in New York and a law degree from the University of Western Australia. 
Heather's research interests lie at the intersection of both disciplines, and she is currently designing an ethnographic investigation of Australia's radio quiet zone. Here's my conversation with Heather. So I think I'm going to start by asking you two questions that I've been asking everyone that I'm talking to about this topic. What is difficult for you about having this conversation that we're having right now at this time? Do you think that we can even reflect and think properly about this while we're still in the middle of it? That's a really good question. Yes, I I think that the situation moves so quickly and has changed so dramatically that we can there's there is time to think about earlier responses and the things that we took for granted for example and i think actually in the moments that we that we take for reflection that's actually sometimes where we find a little bit of solace to to continue moving forward but i have to admit like myself i'm not doing very well uh in taking that time to reflect on the kinds of structural changes that we need as you say whilst we're in the middle of this um, I think there are some very easy knee-jerk uh, responses that feel kind of almost slogany. I've had a, a couple of uh, students say things to me about how this just shows that capitalism can't stand. Um, and that's interesting to me. That's interesting that you have 18-year-olds and 19-year-olds who are sort of recognising this and, and are saying things like that. But, but that's kind of recognising the difficulties of, or, or rather the, the way in which this pandemic is uh, unevenly distributed. So the, the, the particular inequities are being in, unevenly distributed. So they, they're identifying that. And that's interesting to me, but it can't really go further. It doesn't seem to be going further than that because it's kind of, the pandemic is kind of demanding that we do this thing that anthropology always says it can do, which is this imagining otherwise um, and we didn't manage to do the imagining otherwise particularly well without the pandemic. There's so many demands of us at the moment that it's actually difficult to even prioritise that kind of imagining. What kind of situation or what kind of context do we need to give ourselves right now in order to better reflect and better think about it? I mean, who are the people who are doing the reflecting? Who are the people who are who are able to do the imagining? And I think imagining... Um, and speculation are such a privilege Um, and the people who could possibly find the space for that um, and maybe this is a bit of an old school response because maybe I I mean I think I do hold to the to some extent to the value of academia in being the place and a space for exchanging ideas to to reflect um, to take a step outside in order to look back and so if, if academia is sort of that that space um, and it has historically been and it has historically also been the space that has been um, held up and funded um, and supported for that kind of reflection but we also know that the people who populate academia even now and the people that populate the demographic that is I suppose best insulated from the very worst of this situation are the people who are you know not marginalized who aren't going to be I mean, I don't know if they're the people who are best equipped to do that imagining. And I, I, and speaking to some colleagues, there's almost a sense that this has taken 
some of the kind of precarity, for example, of junior junior um, faculty or, or junior colleagues or PhD or master students, it seems to me that sometimes the precarity of these positions uh, has taken the, the institution um, by surprise, which is honestly staggering. So I, I, I kind of query whether the people who are actually in the position to do that imagining are the ones we need to do the imagining. Um, and the ones who we need to do the imagining, um, and they're probably not me either, to be honest, it's probably the people who are at the coalface, um, which I have recently learned is an Australian term, which no one understands, but like the people who are on the front line. <laughs> what are you most worried about in terms of how this is affecting our department or anthropology more generally? I, I, on one hand, I'm, I'm very sympathetic to the fact that there's just no way that the department um, and McGill and any, any tertiary ed- ed institution could have sort of done any kind of contingency planning for, for an event like this, and I, and I appreciate that. That said, we clearly have a broken system, and I think uh, it's McGill as a, an institution is particularly vulnerable to this kind of event because as we've we have all been told um, the budget relies on um, tuition, particularly international student tuition, which is looking incredibly unlikely now. I think to, to answer the department question first, I am very worried about, um, in the very short term, to be completely honest, like the ability for students in the pipeline to, to complete, um, and even those who are sort of towards the tail end of their degrees, um, graduating into a, a market for those who want to go into academia it, it, it honestly felt like in the couple of days where after like the initial maybe a couple of weeks after the initial lockdown I had this very intense feeling of just like closure around the idea of a, a future in academia like it's a strange thing to say but I I think maybe um, naive as it was I had had this view that there might still be some sort of job in teaching and research and it just it felt it felt like those those kinds of avenues were closed but I'm, I'm worried about students uh completing you know in very real terms I'm worried about people who are actually in it at the moment and then in terms of the discipline itself I think this is going to require a huge reckoning about our methods um and maybe priorities as well. This is something that I talk a lot um, with people in my own cohort about when um, an event like this just lays bare how vulnerable um, various parts of, of our society and the way in which the society has been structured and structures us. It becomes very difficult to justify certain research interests that are maybe more esoteric or less pressing. And and normally I don't subscribe to that, but this has made that feeling sort of more um, ever-present. Do you think that that's something that might, that will fade, that feeling? Or do you think that, that, that it's going to stick? It's, it's hard to say. I think, um, I also wonder if it should. I wonder if it should fade. I, um, not, I mean, not that kind of paralysis of the world is ending. I mean, that, that to be honest, like the world is always ending to some extent, like we've been in a slow end for some time anyway. Um, so it's not, it's not that kind of paralysis, but it is about like, where do I want to direct my energies? And um, I mean, my own project, I think there's like some beautiful questions and concept work to be done around preservation of spaces, around what it means to listen. And I think that there's, there's certainly 
political import to those kinds of inquiries uh, always. And, and I think that the world does need slow thinking, <laughs> um, which, which anthropology provides, but there is a, also an urgency I'm feeling about around certain topics. And I, and I think particularly because academia feels now like a, that kind of slow thinking does seem like a career avenue that might actually not be available. And we live in a world where we are also part of the marketplace, whether we like it or not. And so thinking about what kinds of skills we might bring to bear um, and hoping, hoping to God that there becomes a market for skills um, that might be used to address these structural concerns. Um, I mean, it, in some ways, it's not really that different to a lot of questions I was having um, when I was first deciding whether or not to do a PhD. But I, I guess the urgency has been ramped up. Um, and I guess that, that question I began with, like, I'm not sure if it really should pass. Like, I'm, I'm really wondering if urgent, like, this urgency should pass. Because this is, I, I mean, if, if, if the science is to be believed and I believe it... Um, if these kinds of events are going to be occurring more often, then um, surely we need to be addressing these underlying structural problems. What are some suspended activities you would like to see not come back? Uh, well, I, I'm kind of stealing this from probably an Atlantic article I read recently, but um, and it's it's a small one. There, are, there I mean, there are a lot of um, sort of shallow things. That I could say, but one is uh, some of the the personal grooming stuff, um, and I read this fantastic article about um, how women are just like not giving a shit about various um, personal grooming uh, things, and uh, the best of times I can't really be bothered myself. So it's it's kind of been interesting to see what what falls away, what what falls away, and what becomes uh, a, a priority, and that 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 this kind of um, self-care stuff which I both I, I don't want to denigrate but I also you see how how shallow and thin and 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 kind of the underlying bullshit of a lot of this wellness self-care stuff is um, and what you don't actually need a fancy membership or weekly waxes or whatever the fuck like but there is yeah there is um for me if if we could kind of reevaluate, and I don't think this is purely a gendered thing but I mean I'm hopeful that maybe it kind of recalibrates priorities uh, like around image and wellness and and things like that particularly for women. Could you describe to me why this activity seems to you to be dangerous etc which I think you've already touched on a bit but then also how its disappearance might make the other activities that you prefer easier or, or more accessible or more coherent? Yeah, I think, I, I mean, like I said, it feels like such a shallow answer. No, it's really not, because it's about, like, the way that we see ourselves and the way that, the way that we want to prioritize. And, and time. I think um, it's difficult not to think anecdotally, and I, I have a lot of um, friends who, I mean, a number of friends who, for, you know, reasons of total coincidence around the world, um, were pregnant at the same time and actually gave birth during lockdown. Uh, or are heavily pregnant during lockdown. And um, I, yeah, so I I guess I've been thinking a lot about the way in which women are spending time. I I mean, I guess, yeah, I I, I would like, I think the reason why it seems incoherent or uh, this kind of wellness regime 
and this kind of the the requirements of personal grooming. I mean, it's just it's straight up patriarchy. It's boring and it's time consuming and it's a it's a waste of time. But actually, to to piggyback on the earlier question to sort of toggle between the two, it's also made me really think a lot about childcare, <laughs> um, and actually, it's making me. Th- Sorry, this is ruining your questions a little. It has been making me think a lot about um, gender, actually, now that I think about it. One thing I've noticed is I have always been very self-correcting in public space. Like, I'm always hyper-aware of where I am in public space, in part because of safety, um, but also just fucking conditioning whereby, like, I make myself smaller or, or whatever. Um, and it's this is not a particularly insightful comment, like, I'm sure a lot of women um, or people who uh, uh, like racialized individuals would feel the same way but I've noticed that because of the pandemic because we have to be regulating two meter distances working out what a two meter distance is one person at a time in every storefront etc etc that that this idea of regulating your body is has been taken up um, and that that to me I mean that that's kind of a revelation as well that certainly in supermarkets men can't just like walk um, without thinking about where they are in space and that that's quite enjoyable and equally um in terms of childcare, like the kind of revelation that you hear I, I'm hearing my friends partners or male friends um uh, about um child rearing and the kind of work that it entails and that it is work and so I, in some ways I hope that we it's not exactly an activity but it's maybe like the inequity of of labor that women were doing in in the home um, I would like that to not return. <laughs> I'll move on to some of the questions that I thought of more for you. I promise we don't have to talk about this the, the whole time, but I'd like to reflect together a little bit on how this is affecting students who are supposed to be going into the field this coming year. You spoke a little bit about friends of yours who are in the field right now, but how have you been approaching re- rethinking your project? With great difficulty and like and I think an openness I think I've just I I was felt very very resistant to reshaping my project at first um not actually because I'm resistant to it changing but I think resistant to making changes which feel like in in another week they might have to change again so I felt like I wanted to sit with it for a little while and see how it unfolded and I'm anticipating at least six months delay before I enter the field like my plan was to leave Montreal in August and I I suspect that realistically I'll have to delay until January next year and it it will I mean it it will depend in some ways because I'm I'm doing a bit of an ethnography of of a place of a radio quiet zone to some extent um, and it's already a remote location with, with with zero population that there are there are benefits to that uh, equally, though, I'm, I'm like any anthropologist, I plan to do interviews and I've been investigating uh, options for c- conducting them over Zoom. And in fact, some of my p- preliminary uh, discussions have been over uh, Skype anyway. So I am thinking a lot about method. I'm, I, I'm also thinking about, I, I'm thinking about what my project might say. And I, I, I am reluctant to make my project a COVID project I think people have to do that but I think we can we can think through this event uh the series of events if you like and think our projects through it for example one of the features of the radio quiet zone is that it by uh necessity to do the kind of astronomical research uh that 
that radio observatories require, you need to sort of corner off a, an area where there's very low radio uh, frequencies in order to hear the you know, very first radio bursts from the beginning of the universe. And uh, what that does is that actually creates a space where there's very little human activity. And you see this kind of discourse coming up a lot because the planes have stopped, because uh, there's less traffic. So we've heard that the whales are for the first time making different noises because the, the shipping lanes are, are quieter than usual. The canals of Venice have cleared and, and, I don't know, like various animals are returning to previously human populated areas. Um, and I know that's kind of been blown up. And I think that it's a kind of discourse about human retreat and nature's sort of revival that is coming up during COVID that I think actually my project might be able to speak to. So that's the type of thing I've been doing a little, um, trying to question how my, my site actually might shed light on some of the uh, events that are sort of unfolding. The next thing I was going to ask you was how this has affected the way you're thinking theoretically about your project too. Um, and I think that this leads like right into that or might even answer it already. Because the world is going to be different after this in some way. And I, I'm curious about how that changes what we study or how we approach it and how we'll be thinking differently about our work. Yeah, I, I mean, it's, I think that for me is almost too early to answer because and I think different, like different anthropology students and different PhD students in general have different approaches to their research. Um, and I am entirely inductive. I don't want to overdetermine the research. So I was going in with a set of paradoxes uh, about that particular place that were confounding me. And, uh, and they were paradoxes like the fact that this is an area of land that is basically being preserved in order to listen to the to the beginning of time you want to create a space that there's no population so you kind of are uh, retreating from human activity and modernity if you like but at the same time you're putting some of the most high-tech astronomical infrastructure in that space so there were kind of a set of paradoxes I was I, I wanted to look at I, I'm, I'm, I'm going to have to be responsive to new contradictions, new paradoxes, uh, new events as they kind of unfold. And I think a lot of it will be because of COVID. Now, what I should have said is that this area is actually home to an international collaboration. And they they do, they fly in engineers and, and astronomers. Like a lot of it is, it's that kind of data intensive astronomy. So you don't necessarily need to be on site. In fact, you don't. But they do have people flying in and out. Um, and there is the construction of this. So there is a real question about, I, I imagine, um, about whether or not you can have the Italian astronomer come to the site, for example. Um, I, I mean, these are things I, I, I don't know. And this will affect, I think, other similar sites, which, you know, it might be a mine, for example, or a pipeline or, or whatever, but these kind of, these infrastructural projects that um, implicate more than one nation. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's a live question, but I, I honestly don't know enough to sort of even begin to rethink that. And it's interesting, too, that the limitations that you'll have to accessing your field site are going to be very similar to the limitations your participants will be having, right? So it'll be this this kind of shared precarious access that I think will, will help you connect to, to them in a particular way. 
and it's interesting you say that because part of my question um, is this this particular zone, this radio quiet zone. Access is in fact controlled, and I um, and it's it was it's remained a live question. Like to, to what extent could I? I had to think about if I can't get access to this zone, physical access, then what would it be like to do an ethnography of a place that is essentially one that I can only do in almost in, in the negative? Like I could maybe piece together its history, I can piece together the kinds of activities that happened there and talk around what happens there but can't actually access it. And I, th I think, funnily enough, that's going to be very important for a lot of anthropology of the future where you actually might not be able to go to the sites and speak to the people in person. And what does it mean to do ethnography in those terms in absence, to do ethnography in absence, to do ethnography in this kind of negative space, to create something at the edges, basically, um, and that's always been a question that I've had in terms of access, which I think something like COVID reinscribes and becomes relevant for all anthropology. I'm going to switch gears a little bit. I know that this wasn't um, all yours. It was a collaboration between many people in our department. But can you tell me what inspired you to organize this collaborative letter that grad students in our department put together? And if you could explain a little bit what it involved and what you were hoping would come of it. I suppose I was most inspired by the examples that I'd seen from Toronto and, um, and Duke universities that people who had been involved with the McGill department had sort of shared with me. I re I just, I, it occurred to me that actually part of the problem, and it, it occurs to me often in times when I speak with faculty, that there's, there, and I think I mentioned this earlier, there is this kind of lack of, maybe not awareness, but actually what it means, the kind of, what, what, it, the, what we mean when we say like graduate students are precarious. And so I, I had this hunch that possibly faculty didn't quite um, or hadn't quite appreciated, and that might be unfair, but like what we are actually facing in terms of uh, institutional demands, like what McGill is actually demanding of in terms of progress reports and things like that, and how funding is tied to these things, and how if we're renewing for international students, if we're renewing Blue Cross um, insurance, whether or not that would cover a, pan a known event like a pandemic for the following year, like these are very like very practical questions which I I mean we didn't have the answers to and I was worried that faculty wouldn't necessarily turn their minds to and so I wanted a place uh, like a single place where we could all we could communicate our needs basically um, with with the knowledge that this is such a, a movable feast and it's not that there's going to be one answer that sort of stands for all time and we appreciate I think I think everyone appreciates the fact that McGill's not flush in the way that other universities are, but there is a problem with information not being transmitted, I think, uh, consistently and uh, transparently at times. Uh, it kind of, it does trickle down, but you kind of have to know to ask. Um, and that was very frustrating for me. So that was something I wanted to avoid. And equally, I wanted to make sure that we weren't going to all be treated equally in the sense that I, I wanted to make sure that faculty were turning the mind to, for example, your cohort, that what is your cohort's experience going to be like that second year coursework? What will my cohort's experience of doing proposal defences over Zoom be like? Um, we're, we're all at different stages and there can't be one size fits all. Like we need to be, we need to have tailor-made solutions. So I think that was part of it. I think the other thing was, to be completely honest, and I didn't think about this at the time, but as it unfolded, it was a nice opportunity for us all to sort of to, to reconnect, even virtually, and to put these sorts of things um, together, uh, to think collaboratively. And 
uh, I didn't realize how much I needed to sort of see people's comments on a Google Doc. I know it sounds absurd, but it was nice to sort of think through what the future could look like with other people. And see everyone's grievances and worries in one place and like seeing maybe some shared ones and feeling a little bit less alone, but then also becoming aware of things that you might not have thought of kind of is reassuring to see that all of these people are thinking all of these different things and that this document is kind of a representation of us as like a collective. Absolutely, absolutely. And it was became very apparent, actually, that some the cohort specific things actually weren't very, they were like very, very specific. And then over, overwhelmingly, we all did have um, similar concerns regarding funding. I mean, no surprise, really. I mean, and I guess the other funny thing is that in some ways, nothing that we put on the letter in the letter was vastly different to if, if, if faculty had sort of said, hey, send us in some concerns, grievances, questions that you might have. I can't actually imagine that that letter would be vastly different to um, what we're sending in the in the context of this pandemic, because to be honest, like funding is going to always remain an issue, um, especially and, and timing out is going to remain an issue if you have to work or, or raise children or, or care for someone. Yeah, it's it's constantly a, uh, a, a juggling a juggling act for graduate students and the pandemic makes those conditions more precarious but it doesn't like actually change the very essence of the precarity it just kind of pushes us maybe a little bit closer to the edge I think I think so and it was a useful exercise as well I, I know some people are more disappointed with the um with the faculty's response but I'm in some ways I, I mean I'm not, I'm not disappointed in the sense that I, I wasn't surprised that there were a few things that could be said, but I, I think I shared on, on our Facebook group that, that letter. Uh, it was a professor, I think, from one of the UCs, but I forget, but who, who, who said, like, you know, it is going to be the responsibility of, of people who are, are sort of more secure in these particular, uh, in whatever institution, probably across whatever profession, but in anthropology, obviously we're talking about professors or administrators, um, to think about like the futures of, of the discipline as well. Like I don't think we, um, the students, can really we don't have the the bandwidth. I hate that word. We don't. We actually just don't have the time to do it, right? Like I mean, we 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 quite literally do not have the time to do that kind of thinking. But like I said earlier, I think funnily enough, it's also us that should actually be the ones who do some of the designing, even if we can't do the thinking. Yeah, like it's kind of we you need our input, but we don't actually have the the ability or, or space to give that input um, and so then it, it's incumbent I think on people who are more secure to to, to do the, that kind of work and and to, to, to be honest like I think who that will be will shift um, depending like I mean it's always going to it's always going to shift who can do it and who can't. I don't have any more specific questions for you but I'm wondering if there is anything that you would hope to talk about that I didn't think to ask you about. I would be curious to know, you don't have to include this, but I'm very curious to know if people are hopeful or incredibly cynical. I have, like, have, you, talk, have you talked to other people? Because I, I, I definitely vacillate quite wildly between like, feeling really positive and, and, then, and then incredibly despondent. <laughs> and I'm also curious about where then I fit on the spectrum. <laughs> I, I, don't, I don't know. It's tough because there, 
there, there are moments when people are very passionate, either in one direction or the other. I feel like that's a good thing. I'm not sensing a lot of apathy. And like, even in my communications with people trying to organize these interviews and, and you know, asking people to speak with me, they everyone seems very excited to talk about it. Um, and I think that a lot of that comes from like a certain positivity, I think. Yeah, I think that that kind of sums up the, this experience because we're living in very like a, a very queer time, right? Like where the future is, <laughs> we're kind of living very quotidian existences at the moment and there's nothing that feels particularly, that, like, yeah, I feel like there's a, a, we're lacking forward momentum in our daily lives, <laughs> which it then, it then feels like our imagination is limited by that. Like there's something, I think there's something about time in all of this, the way in which, which we're experiencing it. Yeah, time is something that I've been, I'm going to have to, th- figure out how to think about because it's so impossible like it it, this feels like it's going to stretch on forever but it it can't right and I I mean I feel like there's probably like kernels of of wisdom in books around grief um I'm thinking about uh Didion's my year of magical thinking or something but because it's also shared time it's not whereas grief tends to like at least how we speak about grief or it tends to get written about it's such an intensely personal experience and so you're all sharing in this the same sort of grieving, um, but also we're not like the. I think the kind of color and um, texture of the grief will change depending on how you experience the pandemic. And I think what you mentioned earlier, like can we think about this stuff? Uh, I mean, I'm really the answer that I should have given is uh, can we? Well, we we obviously are. Like we are doing that thinking. Like we can't stop thinking about it. I, whether or not that like leads to something actionable or like operational is a different question, but. I think we never stop thinking anthropologically. Um, we can't help ourselves. That's all for this week. Thank you so much to Heather for sharing her time and insights with me. This episode was produced by me, Alejandra Melian. Music by Justin Kober. Recording of Bobby Seal accessed via the American Archive and information about the Panthers Health Programs found through the Columbia Mailman School of Public Health. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe, and come talk culture with us on Twitter at TalkCulturePod or Instagram at TalkCulturePodcast. You can also email us at TalkingCulturePod at gmail.com. We want to hear your thoughts. Stay safe, everyone.